With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Professor Daniel T. Rogers, the Henry Charles Lee Professor of History Emeritus at Princeton University and author of the new book, As a City on a Hill, The Story of America's Most Famous Lay Sermon, published in 2018 by Princeton University Press. This charming book tells an engaging history of John Winthrop's now famous sermon, A Model of Christian Charity which now stands in popular political discourse as a foundational text of American politics after three and a half centuries of virtual neglect. It's a twisting and surprising tale, and I'm very excited to have Professor Rogers here to tell us more about it. Thanks for joining us, Dan, and welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, before we get into the details of the book, Dan, we'd like for you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. You've had a long and distinguished career of teaching and writing, Your books consistently won awards, including the prestigious Bancroft Prize for your 2011 book, The Age of Fracture. Tell us a little bit about your education and career, especially as it led you to write this newest book, As a City on a Hill. Well, the career was a complicated one, Ryan, and I won't go into all of that. I didn't imagine myself becoming an historian, but I I came of of age, went to college in the 1960s uh, when, um, if you wanted to know what was going on in um, the world, what mattered was what people were arguing about. There's an enormous fertility of ideas in those in those uh, years, um, and there still is. And it uh, threw me into the history of ideas, the history of beliefs, the history of arguments, the history of discourse, as we as we call it, maybe more neutrally. Um, there are others who were drawn to the power of ideas, who wanted to pin down an idea in its pure form, or to think about it as a philosophy. Philosopher might think about it, and but I was not interested in that nearly so much as I was interested in the, the uh, mutability of ideas, the fact that ideas changed so often um, and yet kept their power throughout um, the events around them to shape people's imaginations, to shape their actions, to shape their um, the very uh, frame in which they were living. And so I've written about all kinds of ideas over time, always in, in a context of change. Uh, the first one was a book called The Work Ethic in Industrial America about how um, persons in the United States, but also to some extent in England, uh, took ideas about the moral value of hard work um, and tried to reassess them at the time when machinery and industrialization had changed so much about work. What did they change? What, what did they stick to even when the fit became a more and more tenuous? 
And then I got interested in political ideas, wrote a book uh, called Contested Truths about um, the ways in which Americans have argued about politics since the 18th century. Um, all the time I knew that doing only American history, only American studies was a, was a, a distortion of the real uh, ways in which history operates. Uh, Americans who talked about the value of work read Samuel Smiles as often as they read Horatio Alger. They were deeply infected by the work of Thomas Carlyle. Uh, they lived in a transatlantic world. And so um, I took one of the set pieces of American history, the progressive years, and tried to rewrite that history in a uh, international, transnational framework, just at the moment when transnational studies were, were getting underway. It was an exciting piece of work to try to think about uh, what had always been an American-centered problem, the progressive years of progressive reform in the context of France, Germany, England, as well as the United States. Um, then I got interested in the uh, changes in, in ideas all across the board, from economic ideas to political ideas, in the period since the 1970s, in a book called Age of Fracture. That's the book that won the Bancroft Prize. And um, I sometimes tease it was... Uh, uh, that won the Bancroft Prize because of its title. Um, fracture is the, uh, eight, the word of our time, but it also, I think, was a, a real attempt to try to think about how ideas change as radically as they have uh, since the 1970s and how uh, new ideas of, of the more isolated, free-to-choose individual uh, came into currency in so many, many different areas. And then I did the book we're going to talk about and uh, because I thought I'd never looked at a single text before. I'd always done these landscape studies. What would it be like to think about the transformations of a single text and a single idea? And so that brought me to City on a Hill. Your, your book very artfully lays out the story of Winthrop's model in, in really kind of three acts. The first part attends to the production of the text itself and the immediate context that Winthrop was writing into. Right from the outset, you make a striking observation that America's most famous lay sermon might not technically have maybe even been a sermon at all, at least certainly not by 17th century standards. What was the origin of Winthrop's model to the best we can know? Um, well, let me back up just one sec um, to talk about that, because uh, I began actually with the myth that's around uh, the model of Christian charity, the text, and the myth that's around the phrase that Americans remember most vividly uh, from it when they remember anything now, which is that we shall be as a city on a hill. Uh, because the, uh, the, the received story does have it as a sermon given by John Winthrop, the governor of the uh, company that was going to settle in Massachusetts, uh, the Puritan-backed uh, settlement that wasn't the beginning of U.S. history, of course, but uh, was one of the early attempts to try to figure out what the English were going to do in their uh, invasion of the North American continent. Um, and in that uh, version that was in every textbook at the time that uh, I started thinking about this text, the governor, John Winthrop, had been in the middle of a sea voyage. He had come to uh, either just off the shores of, of England or perhaps in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or maybe in the harbor of Boston. And he gathered folks together and said, this is who we are. We are people in covenant with God to make a new and better society, and the world will notice that we will be as a city upon the hill with the eyes of all people upon us. So that's where, that's where I started, and so it made it all the more startling that so much of that is wrong. Um, it's, it's clear that um, Winthrop had been 
uh, thinking about the ideas that went into the City on the Hill uh, text long before he got to the Atlantic Ocean. It's not a mid-Atlantic discourse at all. And as you say, it's probably not a sermon at all. He had been in the middle of a meeting of, of investors in the New England settlement, and there was a fierce, fierce argument about debts, about repayments of debts, about what the investors should do when their money was going sour in an investment that was costing more and more and seemed to be uh, still not close to fruition. And he pleaded with them. He pleaded with them to uh, renew their investments, even if they were going to lose, using uh, phrases out of the out of the Bible to to uh, reiterate the, the the ways in which debts must be forgiven uh, when the greater glory of God was was um, in the way of being executed. Um, you had to lay aside all market issues. You had to lay aside profit and loss and um, and and do what was required. Uh, you must practice charity, and that's the that's the core of the model of Christian charity. It's a sermon about, I shouldn't say a sermon, it began as a speech. It was probably turned into a either a sermon on uh, sometime in the process of getting either onto the ships or perhaps, perhaps so I doubt it, later on. Um, but it's, and it was then that the City on the Hill phrase was was added. But it begins as a plea to investors, and it begins as a, as a uh, discourse about love about mutuality, about the dependency of everybody in that colony upon each other, even even when profit and loss should dictate otherwise. You, you know, the notion of being a chosen people often attends closely to the history of this text. You make the observation that in the original context, this notion of a covenanted people might not have had altogether triumphant overtones. So how did Winthrop conceive of the Massachusetts settlers' relationship to God, and was this particularly exceptional in 1630s across Atlantic Christendom? It wasn't exceptional at all, and, and uh, that was behind your question, uh, Ryan, and should be behind all our listeners' uh, uh, first responses. How unusual was it to imagine one's, one's uh, city, one's society, one's settlement, one's nation um, as a in covenant with God? And the answer is, uh, in Protestant Europe, um, that idea um, was everywhere. The English were in, had been insistent, uh, even before the uh, the Puritan Revolution, uh, that they were a chosen people of God. Uh, the, uh, the, the Calvinists in, in Holland and um, in the uh, low countries of Germany were equally insistent that they were a chosen people of God. Calvin in uh, Geneva uh, used covenant theology was their way of understanding who they were in the biblical text. They were they were like the people of Israel, and um, it wasn't it wasn't un- unusual at all. He picked it right out of right out of the air, and he didn't do anything terribly special or terribly American um, with it, um, because always the notion of being in the the footsteps of Israel was was a double edged was a double edged place to be in in historical time. After all, God in Old Testament uh, chooses the people of Israel to be his, but he also, in that very act, um, uh, sets up their disobedience and what will happen if they disobey. If they were perfect people, it would all be easy. But of course, no people are perfect. And so 
being a chosen people means that you're always in terror, uh, a potential terror of backsliding, failing to live up to your promise, uh, being less than you hope to be, um, not exercising charity, as Winthrop said, as, as, as uh, fully and as deeply and wholeheartedly as you should. Uh, and so uh, that, that double side comes through in, in Winthrop's own phrase, City on a, on a Hill, uh, where he talks about uh, Massachusetts being a city on the hill, um, just like uh, many of the Puritan towns in, in England would call themselves cities upon a hill. But it was a city on a hill in two senses. It was going to radiate um, society better than other societies, a society that was trying to live in covenant with God, but it was also going to be um, exposed to the scrutiny of everyone. It was going to be visible. It was going to be naked um, on the kind of mountaintop of its own aspirations so that if it failed, its failure was going to be spectacular. And for Winthrop, city on a hill, chosen people always had this double edge of confidence, enormous confidence, and the enormous sense of the fragility of what one was undertaking. We'll discuss a little later how Winthrop's sermon was revived in the midst of a, of a great economic struggle during the late 20th century Cold War tensions. But you notice that some of those same economic overtones, and you, you've touched on this a little bit already, permeate the creation of the document itself. At least it was in Winthrop's mind as he was conceiving it before the voyage. But perhaps without exactly the same kind of market capitalism with which it's been more recently associated. What were some of the important values around this model of Christian charity that Winthrop advocated? Well, one of the chestnut questions that everybody in, on, uh, in our listener uh, reach will, will, will know that historians have asked and American studies folks have asked about American history for, for a very long time was, was how deeply capitalist was the, was the founding of the British settlements in the new uh, continent. Uh, was American capitalist from the beginning? Was it a society, a market society? Was it a society that that valued economic ambition? And the answer, of course, is very complicated because there there is no uniformity among the first British settlements in North America. Uh, the the slave and uh, and wealth seeking societies of of Virginia and the South were quite different from from uh, what Winthrop was was trying to help establish in Boston. And they were very different from what the Quakers uh, would do in, in Pennsylvania later on. But the interesting thing about Massachusetts is that it managed to combine a market society, a capitalist society, which uh, the forms of a modern corporation were all there. Uh, the drive for uh, returns on investment was all there. It managed to combine that with doubts, with some sense that uh, market capitalism alone the market alone was not sufficient. And so I was fascinated with the ways in which not only did the early uh, Massachusetts authorities uh, try every uh, sporadically, but, but came back over and over again to the question about whether prices should be allowed to be simply run free. When there, was, there were shortages, should merchants be able to charge as much as they wanted? Uh, when um, there were shortages of labor, should laborers be able to charge as much as they wanted? I mean, I was also fascinated with the way in which they brought to uh, into the this beginnings of, of American settlement uh, a concern with the poor, which is for which um, Winthrop's 
notion of charity, notion of love across different social classes is actually um, one of the most profound and eloquent statements. Uh, the, the Massachusetts Puritans didn't really like the poor. Um, they, um, they, they, in many ways, begrudged the taxes they paid for the poor. They disciplined the poor. Uh, they made sure that the poor were kept under, under control. But nevertheless, they supported them. And so I was fascinated with the stories of some of those who, who struck me as coming right straight out of Winthrop's text, uh, ne'er-do-wells, shiftless folks they would have been called, um, who drank too much or um, who had too many children, which was a problem for the, for the authorities. Um, they were nonetheless, nonetheless um, supported by the early um, Massachusetts authorities because they were part of the community, because they had a claim on the, on the common wheel of that Winthrop tried to enunciate. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Fascinating. Well, I'd like to move now to the second section of your of your book. For most of the 18th and 19th century, Winthrop and his model were largely forgotten. You discussed this growing need for foundational documents to provide a national mythology, but the Puritans and John Winthrop, they sure didn't seem to fill much of a role in the nation's history during that time. What were some of the earlier sources of textual foundations? And, and how did the New England Puritans eventually jockey for that position in the, the American pantheon? The Puritans certainly were not um, at, uh, in the early, early uh, years, at the 18th, 18th century, thought of as the, as the founders of, of the nation. They were an isolated, very, uh, uh, in time, wealthy, um, important uh, sub-colony amidst the other, the other colonies. And um, when the first histories of the United States began to be written, or the first celebrations of, of the United States began to be made, um, those celebrations began with the founding documents of the revolution. They began with the, uh, for the Jeffersonians with the Declaration of Independence, though the Declaration of Independence was much, much more disputed uh, at its time than the myths have it. They began with the Constitution, though, again, the Constitution was highly disputed at its own time. They began with the political documents of the founding of the U.S. nation. And the Puritans were not in the, in the picture at all uh, for many reasons. Um, early New England was by no means a democracy, even though uh, the governors were elected. Only church members could vote in colony-wide elections. There was enormously strict uh, discipline that, was, uh, that kept that population under control, uh, religious uh, toleration only came by the uh, 
imposition from the English authorities, not from the Puritans uh, themselves. And so there was a lot, not a lot in uh, Massachusetts at the beginning to, to celebrate. What Massachusetts was important for was that the active resistance to British rule began in Boston. Boston was a very unruly place by the end of the 18th century, um, but it began um, with not church figures nearly so much as sailors and other uh, ambitious um, lay folks like John Adams and, and Sam Adams. But in the 19th century, um, New Englanders, out of regional pride, began not only to begin to write their own history in a, in a uh, much more laudatory way than had been written before, but they began to argue that they were the beginnings of American history. They even got this young um, uh, visitor, Alexis de Tocqueville, um, to agree with them. Uh, he stayed in, in Boston in the early parts of his visit to the United States. Um, he soaked up everything that he was told uh, there, and he relayed some of it. The beginnings of American society must lie in uh, the Puritan, with the Puritan uh, settlement. Um, but nobody much believed them for a long, long while despite their importance in the history writing in the early years. And above all, they didn't think that the Puritans, particularly Winthrop's generation of Puritans, uh, were the ancestors of the nation. As I say, they were not democratic enough. Uh, they were too elitist. They were too bound in their own particular uh, religious convictions and religious belief. And so you can look through textbooks um, in the 18th century, early textbooks in the 18th century, the textbooks all the way through the 19th century, are the textbooks in the first part of the 20th century, and you simply will not find the model of Christian charity or the city on the hill phrase used in those textbooks at all. Even, even by figures like, uh, like Woodrow Wilson, whom we think must have absorbed this notion of the importance and divine history of the United States. He, he didn't know the text. He wasn't interested in the text. I found one of the most interesting chapters in this this portion of the book where where Winthrop and his model are kind of underground, still forgotten, was your chapter on the the African Republic of of Liberia. Uh, while not directly appealing to Winthrop's model, you note a reprise of this city on a hill rhetoric. And you also note some striking parallels between the way the phrase was used then with Winthrop's own context. What does 17th century Boston have in common with 19th century Monrovia? Let me back up just one, one uh, a step there. It was one of the most fascinating things I, I, I found, that, that if you're going to look for city on the hill rhetoric, and that phrase in and of itself applied to a nation, not applied to a church or, or a, a, a small group of people, but if you're going to apply it to a nation, it was the founders of Liberia who were most eager to take it up and who used it most intensively. Uh, but but the, the point I want to back up to make is that all nations that emerged from the uh, end of the uh, 18th century on, the new kind of national uh, power, the new kind of, of country which claimed to have a special place in the allegiance and the hearts and the souls of its people, uh, they all talked about themselves in one way or another as being special. They all talked about themselves in one way or another as being examples to the rest of the world. They all talked in the 
about themselves in one way or another as having a special relation with history or with God or with destiny. Uh, and so phrases like the city on a hill were around. The point that that was a surprise, and that I, again, I want to emphasize, is that they didn't need Winthrop to talk about these sorts of these sorts of things. And the settlers of Liberia didn't know Winthrop's text and didn't use Winthrop's text. But they knew the core point that Winthrop had enunciated in that text when he got to the City on a Hill section. They knew that founding what was going to be the first Black-led republic on the continent of Africa was going to be a task of enormous controversy around the world. And they knew it was an experiment in trying to prove what uh, people of color could do uh, as, as full citizens, as founders of nations. And so they, they talked about themselves as being an example, a radiant example, a city on the hill to other uh, in, on the African continent that they too could find their way out of colonial fetters, find their way into nationhood, uh, but also as if they were under the uh, eyes of a very, very uh, skeptical world, that they were under scrutiny all the time as others waited uh, for their for their failure. And so in that sense, they did recapitulate some of what was uh, in Winthrop's mind. They were going to make a society unlike a society that had existed before, and they were going to be watched every single moment by those who were waiting for its failure. As we move into the final part of your book, which you call Icon, we see a forgotten text turn into a rhetorical centerpiece of American politics. You pick up the story with the commissioning of a statue in Boston. What would co- what caused this new wave of interest in New England Puritans in the early part of the 20th century, both in public and also in the academy? Well, the first part of it has to do with uh, the continuing um, regional boosterism of of the New Englanders. It was uh, during the course of a celebration of the of the uh, uh, what would have been the, the 300th year of Boston's settlement that the statue that has the text, uh, the famous part of the City of the Hill text um, on it was, was erected. But that was still a very, a very local uh, affair. It's also um, important to say that the first president who used the City on a Hill phrase, John Kennedy, was still uh, talking um, in local terms. He didn't refer to the United States as the City of the Hill. He referred uh, to uh, the uh, legislature of the state of Massachusetts as needing to think about itself as more closely under the scrutiny of those who were um, deeply, deeply uh, concerned with its corruptions um, and get its act together as if it were a city on the hill. But uh, that's an aside. The the precipitating event was the Cold War. Cold War did, did um, two things to American uh, society to talk really, really... Uh, in simplified terms. One is it consolidated uh, the nation around its sense of opposition to this new superpower, its own realization of its superpower status itself, um, which meant that um, more and more persons began to study what they called American studies, trying to think about the, the nature of American society as a whole, rather than in regional terms or rather than in terms of the of, of Diverse classes, as Charles Beard had uh, had uh, sketched the core history of the United States, or rather than in terms of the frontier, as Frederick Jackson Turner had argued, 
they began to try to find what unified Americans. And they also were deeply concerned that there was not quite enough to unify Americans. And so they began to look for texts, they began to look for ideas. The phrase American idea, the American idea comes out of the Cold War uh, because it was clear that the Soviet Union was broadcasting around the world a sense of what its idea was, what its mission in the world was, what its core uh, intention was. What was what was America besides this jumble of, of people and its complicated history and a civil war that wasn't all that far in the past? And so it was in the context of looking for American studies, for the American core, um, and it above all, and a belief that was at the American core uh, that the first persons uh, stumbled onto Winthrop's forgotten text. Perry Miller, who many of your uh, listeners will, will know by reputation, was one of the first to do so. Um, and But then uh, Dan Burston uh, joined in, in that. Slowly by the late 50s and early 60s, uh, you began to see references to Winthrop, um, and you begin to see references to Winthrop much less hostile than those that had been in play before. One of my own uh, teachers, a wonderful teacher um, and uh, an, an extraordinary historian named Edmund S. Morgan, wrote a book on Winthrop in the 1960s as an example of a man who, in a dangerous world, used power with discretion and wisdom. Not perfectly, but used power with discretion. Ed was not a, a conventional Cold Warrior, but that was a, a parable for the Cold War, uh, for what he hoped that um, those now in authority in the United States uh, would do with the, with the authority that they had and the dangers of the world in which they, they lived. So it's in this context that, uh, that Winthrop began to emerge, that Puritans themselves began to emerge as giving a still deeper foundation to this thing called America than the Declaration of Independence, than the Constitution, to make a civilization out of America, where one could might have said there was no civilization to begin with, but a, a group of competing and sometimes cooperating uh, civilizations. Well, the real catapult of Winthrop sitting on a hill you mentioned is in the political speeches of Ronald Reagan, coming right out of this period that you've been describing. What about Winthrop's vision first attracted the aspiring president? And how did his use of the sermon develop from his early political rise and through to the end of his political career? Reagan is the one who makes the the city on a hill phrase, the iconic phrase in American politics that was going to last all the way to the beginning of the of the Donald Trump presidency. It became a phrase that, that was indelibly associated with him, but also uh, compulsory for all political figures and compulsory for textbook writers and compulsory for all those who made anthologies of American literature and American studies. Um, we, we don't know exactly uh, where Reagan got the phrase, though we actually know that he got it himself. He wrote uh, the core lines about the city on the hill down in a, a note card. He used to keep note cards, three by five note cards in his suit jacket pocket. And when he was giving extemporaneous speeches, which he did all the way through the 1950s, he would pull those note cards out and look for a quotation that seemed apt to the point. Um, and there it is in his own handwriting. You can still find the thing in the, uh, in the Reagan uh, National Library in California. But for him, uh, what the phrase meant uh, was that um, in the midst of turmoil in the midst of struggle, 
in the midst of a struggle that for him by now was not only international struggle with the Cold War, but a struggle at home against uh, the student radicals in, in California, uh, against whom he took a very hard and, and very prominent stand. Uh, there were there was still a promise, a hope that Americans and a destiny that Americans ultimately would be a city upon the hill to themselves and to the world. And he took that into the White House. Uh, the, the striking thing about what happens when it goes into the White House is that Winthrop's sense of struggle, Winthrop's sense that the city upon the hill was fragile. Uh, his speechwriters, who began to get a hold of the phrase for the first time, uh, were not quite so sure that this was what Americans wanted to hear. And so they began to bathe the city on a hill, if I can put it that way, in hmm. more light, more hope, more optimism. They made it simpler. And they also made it very, very powerful. That what Winthrop, what, what excuse me, Reagan did was to take Winthrop's phrase with all its anxiety and erase the anxiety and give us instead, we are a radiant city, a city of, of, of lights, a city of continuous lights, a hope and beacon to all the world, unique, exceptional, um, and I'm proud. And uh, that was uh, by the end of the, the closing years of the Cold War. We can't say the Cold War was over during Reagan's term, but as it became clear that the Soviet Union's challenge was not going to be uh, as uh, dangerous to American uh, place in the world as it seemed earlier, uh, that cheerleading side of Reagan was what Americans wanted to hear. And he somehow, somehow transformed this, this complicated um, man of, both hopes and pessimism into a cheerleader for America. That's fascinating. So since Reagan, you observe that Winthrop's model has been part of nearly every major politician's rhetoric with the, the noteworthy exception of Donald Trump, which at the time that we're recording this is in its last few weeks, perhaps last few days, if some are correct. I have to add that I wish I'd read your book prior to the 2020 election cycle because I might have been paying closer attention to whether um, Winthrop's phrase has been picked up again. I'm curious if you noticed any reprisals in recent months, but more importantly, wh where do you think the current role of Winthrop's idea is in American life? Do you think Winthrop would recognize much, if anything, of his own thoughts in its current iteration? Well, the answer to the last part is I don't think Winthrop would recognize much at all. He wanted a he wanted a godly society, and he would have looked at. Uh, uh, around the world, and he, he would not have found one to to, to his liking. Um, and there's this curious way in which we deal with the past, in which we want to yank these figures from the past. We want to yank Thomas Jefferson suddenly into into 2021 and say, "Well, Tom, what 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 would you have thought of what's going on?" And and these are are silly exercises that historians ought to get over. Uh, they would have found themselves bewildered because the whole structure of society. The structure of the economy, the structure of, of thought um, changes changes so much. Um, but we we have this really strong desire to imagine that there's a straight line between a nation's past and its present. And so we're always, always inventing a, a linear history in which somehow Winthrop, Jefferson, Lincoln, Wilson, Reagan all lead unbrokenly to the present. Each one would have been bewildered by what had happened before. But do people still use the phrase? Um, James Comey used the phrase after he'd been fired as uh, FBI director by Donald Trump. 
I'm sure that uh, that we will hear it from from Joe Biden uh, because uh, he'll he'll pick it up as the counterpoint to the other side that Donald Trump made uh, uh, so vivid, uh, so volatile, uh, so um, terrifying in many, many ways. Because what Donald Trump picked up was the sense that for many Americans, they don't imagine they live in a city on the hill. They don't imagine they live in a society organized as it should be. They're angry. We saw that so vividly in the last, in the last week. Uh, they live in a kind of continuous uh, anger. Some of them are very faithful churchgoers, and so they also live with, with hope, sometimes eschatological hope, that a new world is around the corner, uh, certainly uh, with a, a sense of uh, somehow God will make all of this right. But in the meantime, they live with a sense of, of displacement in their own society and anger at their own society. And so by shoving over the idea of the city on the hill, which I don't think uh, Trump ever knew about the phrase, and he, if he'd been been proposed to him, he would have rejected. Um, he talked about the United States as a disaster, a disaster over and over again. Um, it was everything was was wrong. It was surrounded by by enemies. It needed to be um, made great again. But at the moment, it was a dumpster fire, as one of the commentators put it. He he ran with that sort of oppositional idea to the city on the hill as far as anybody has ever done stoked more anger than anybody had ever done. Um, and I think that Joe Biden is going to come back and say, in fact, these things are not as, as they should be, uh, but this is a nation that still has things to be proud of in the world. And, um, and it ought to get on with, with that and cool the, the emotional angers that, that, uh, that Trump made his calling card. So if I were a betting person, Ryan, I, I would bet we hear more about the city on the hill. But would it be Winthrop City on the hill? No, it hasn't been for for centuries. Well, Dan, it's been such an honor to talk with you about this wonderful book, as a City on a Hill. Before we say goodbye, I wonder if you'd like to share with us a little bit about what you're currently working on. Well, it's hard to know exactly how this is going to shape up, Brian. And I'm always hesitant to talk about what I'm working on when it's still so... Um, unclear in my mind. They're, they're people, historians, really wonderful historians who know exactly what they're interested in and exactly what they're going to find. And I must say this book um, that we've just been talking about, uh, likes, like all of them, it began kind of in the middle. It began with a whole set of questions. Um, who, who knew where it was going to go until it went? Um, and that's one of the joys and excitement uh, as, uh, for me of, of thinking about, about history. But what I'm thinking about now is, a, is, is actually thinking about the writing of American history. Um, this this huge debate in American society now, in American political society now, about whether textbooks and accounts of American history should be celebratory, should they be critical, should they talk about a unitary people, should they talk about a, a, a diverse and con, uh, contending groups of Americans? Uh, it's it's a ferocious political debate, uh, which is going nowhere at that level. But I want to try to see if there's ways of sketching out the different formulas for writing a history of the nation. Really complicated question. What is a nation? Does it have a unitary history? How do you write about it? How do you put the pieces uh, together in a way that's honest, that's full, um, that um, helps us understand the societies we live in? And so that's what I'm thinking about, whether this be a short book, whether it will be a, a long um, essay, I don't know, but I'm thinking about 
thinking about history itself. That sounds like important and timely work, and I can't wait to learn from you more as that project develops. Well, once again, we've been speaking with Professor Daniel T. Rogers about his book, As a City on a Hill, The Story of America's Most Famous Lay Sermon, published in 2018 by Princeton University Press, just made available in paperback last fall. I hope you give it a read. We've only just scratched the surface and there are nuggets in every chapter. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. And thank you for listening to the New Books Network. Visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com for more great interviews. There you can find a link to purchase all the books on our show from bookshop.org, where part of the proceeds will go to support local booksellers. If you enjoyed the interview, share it with your friends, leave a review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. It's been great to be with you, and I hope you have a great day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.